0: Welcome to the Co-Mission podcast, a place to hear talks, teaching and conversations from across the Co-Mission network. We're back for 2019 with brand new conversations, as well as talks and sermons from the Commission archives. We're starting off with a talk from our latest event, the Co-Mission Women's Day, which took place in January 2019. Today we hear Liz Hayden, staff worker at Christchurch Mayfair, as she explores Isaiah 40 in a talk entitled Incomparable God.
1: Arms sweating, heart thumping, I sit in my seat. I close my eyes and for the next hour I will listen attentively to every small change in sound coming from the engines beneath me. After the meal is served, I fall asleep, only to wake up suddenly about 20 minutes later with a knot in the pit of my stomach imagining that sudden catastrophe is upon us. Now I have a fear of flying and I'm still afraid of flying despite the fact I know the statistics that it is much safer to travel between two wings than it is to travel on on top of four wheels. But despite that, I still have certain visions of death every time I get on a plane. I guess some of us in this room will be chronic worriers. others of us um, are much more optimistic. Some of us find that we're always worrying about what could go wrong. Others of us are much more happy-go-lucky. But whatever we're like naturally, all of us live in an, in an uncertain world. None of us know what the future holds, whether it's good or bad. Think about um, the start of, or the year that was 2016. At the start of 2016, who would have expected that that year would see so many surprises? Who would have expected the outcome of a certain referendum? Or the election of a certain president? Or who could have envisioned that the great British public would vote to name a polar research ship Boaty McBoatface? As you look ahead to 2019, what makes you most anxious? Which people, what problems fill you with fear perhaps your contract is coming to an end at work and you're uncertain that you'll find another job perhaps there's a a family relationship that's under strain and you're afraid that it's only going to get worse perhaps you're worried for your children and their future or a loved one you know is sick and even the doctors don't know what to do about it To what extent does knowing God make a difference to you with those fears? I guess we all know from experience the power that fear has to overcome our faith. Fear doesn't feel like God is protecting us. Fear doesn't feel like the peace of God is surrounding me. And fear has a close relative called doubt. Fear doubts God's nearness when times are hard. Fear doubts God's ability to do us good even if the worst happens. I mentioned earlier that Isaiah chapter 40 is full of of imagery and uh, the purpose of that imagery is to capture our imagination. It's one of the best loved passages in the Bible. Perhaps it's one of your favourites. But I wonder, have you ever uh, thought to yourself, why did Isaiah write this? Well, he wrote it because the people he was writing to or speaking to back then they were afraid they were full of fear their circumstances at the time were bad and as they looked forward to the future the future looked even worse and because of their fear their faith was failing i don't know about you but when i'm afraid i tend to focus all of my attention on the source of my fear But interestingly, Isaiah does precisely the opposite. He says nothing about the people's circumstances in this chapter. He doesn't mention the fact that the the nation then, uh, they were a puny country on the world stage. He doesn't talk about the fact that there are two superpowers, the mighty Assyria, the powerful Babylon. They're flexing their muscles, and God's people are caught in between them. It's a little bit like... The U.S. and China threatening to go to war and a country the size of Wales being caught in the middle of it. They just don't stand a chance in the face of two powers as great as that. And so the people are doubting God. They're doubting his presence with them. They're doubting that he's working for their good. But Isaiah wants them to take their their minds off their circumstances, off the really scary situation that they're in. He wants them to put their minds onto their God. He does that because the only way to overcome fear is with a God-sized view of God. The only way to overcome fear is with a God-sized view of God. I was talking to a friend at church recently about how we would protect ourselves in a fight. Not because either of us regularly get into fights, but this particular friend, she does a lot of house visits as part of her job. She often has to go alone. And naturally she thinks that she's vulnerable in those moments. And she's wondering, should she kind of carry something for her self-protection? You know, should the worst happen? And so she was telling me that she'd been researching online and she'd been considering um, buying something that you could keep in your handbag to get out at the moment to defend yourself in the face of a possible attacker. And this particular product, it looks like a little travel miniature deodorant, a little spray, aerosol spray that you you pop in your handbag. And uh, should the worst happen, you can grab this, spray this sort of sticky red substance in the eyes of your attacker, and it achieves two things. Number one, it temporarily blinds the attacker so that you can get away. And it dyes their skin red so that they are more easily identifiable by the police afterwards. Now, I want to give top marks for imagination to whoever designed this product. Um, But I have to say, I'm a little bit skeptical that it actually would work. I'm not convinced that at the crucial moment, it would really deliver. Because what are the chances that you could actually find this in your handbag? (laughs) I struggle to find things in my handbag, even when I'm not under intense stress. And I know what would happen to me. I'd probably find it, and then I'd discover as I sprayed it that it really was my travel mini deodorant or dry shampoo. And I looked online, I looked at the reviews, which were all extremely positive, but not one of the reviewers had actually tested it in a real-life scenario. And I'm not convinced it really does work. Imagine, though, that instead of this safety spray, my friend had a bodyguard. With a bodyguard, she need never worry about her personal safety again. She could walk down the darkest of dark alleyways without fear with a bodyguard she could come home at any time of day or night with a bodyguard no one would even think to to would even think about harming her you see the reason that our fear so often overwhelms our faith is because we tend to think that god is more like the safety spray and not like the bodyguard so no wonder our anxieties they spiral out of control The safety spray, it might be convenient, it might fit in your handbag, but it's basically useless. If your God is that small, that ineffective, he'll be no comfort to you. We need a bigger view of God. A God who will protect his people. The only way to overcome fear is with a God-sized view of God. Of course, I can't promise you that God will protect you in the way that you expect Him to or want Him to. He might not give you the security of being a homeowner. He might not give you the comfort of a husband or children. There are no promises He will take away the debilitating disease. God's protection could look like an era of our lives getting worse, not better. But we are promised that even if the worst happens, God is always working his power for our protection. He'll protect us from the destructiveness of sin and Satan. He will help us to believe and not doubt. He will comfort us. He'll protect us because he's far bigger, far greater than anything we might fear in this life. Today, we're going to spend most of our time in Isaiah chapter 40 in the middle section, verses 12 to 26. But first of all, we're going to look very briefly at verses 1 to 11. God is coming to comfort his people. So perhaps we're starting to imagine how the people back then were feeling. It was probably one of the lowest points in their history. The nation of Israel had been split into two. So there was Isaiah, sorry, not Isaiah. Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Israel had already been destroyed by Assyria, and all the survivors carried off into exile. And there's little Judah left holding on. But they too, they're facing the prospect of invasion from the mighty Babylon. They're intensely vulnerable. And they would have been acutely aware that were Babylon to invade, they would not be able to protect themselves. So they're scared. They desperately need a reminder of who their God is. Well, we're going to look at this section only briefly, as I said, so stay with me. We'll we'll jump around the verses a little bit. But did you notice how in verses 1 to 11, it's full of voices? And it's not always clear who is speaking, Sometimes it seems to be God speaking. Sometimes it's Isaiah, the prophet. Sometimes there are other anonymous voices that seem to be speaking out of nowhere. And did you notice that the volume of the voices, they're not whispering, they're crying out. By verse 9, if you have a look with me in your booklets, the people bringing this, this news are on top of mountains. And they're shouting it out. So clearly there's a message that needs to be shared, a message to be heard. And before we think about the content of that that message, let's think about whose message it is. Have a look at the end of verse 5. This message comes straight from the mouth of the Lord. Glance at verse 8. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Unlike the words of men, God's words are faithful. They can be trusted. His words are unique. So it's a message to be listened to because of who it comes from. And perhaps the the number of voices and the, the volume of the voices tell us something about the people at this time. They're consumed by fear, so consumed by fear... That they've stopped taking in God's word. All they can they can think about is what's going wrong? Their attention is entirely on the source of their fear. And isn't that often our biggest problem too, or our temptation when we're discouraged, when we're afraid? Isn't our temptation to stop listening to God's word? Well, what's the content of this message? The message is that God is coming to his people. In verse 3, have a look with me. The people are told, In the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And skip down to verse 5. The glory of the Lord will be revealed and all people will see it together. God will not abandon his people He's not going to remain hidden from them in the darkness of their circumstances. He will reveal himself in all his glory and he will prove himself to be far greater and bigger than any of the fears that they face. When the people see God as he truly is, incomparable, everything that ever caused them fear will just fade away and be forgotten. What God's people needed then and what we need now is a God-sized view of God. When the Lord comes, what will he be like? Well, we see at the end of this section in verses 10 and 11, Isaiah gives us two descriptions of God, two images that are perhaps contradictory, contrasting. So have a look in verse 10. The sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. And verse 11, he tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers his lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. I don't know about you, but I find myself asking, which one is he, Isaiah? Is he the sovereign, mighty Lord? Or is he the tender, gentle shepherd? And it's an important question because if God is the the mighty warrior king, then I can be absolutely sure that he has the power to protect me. But I might ask myself, does he really care for me? Does he even know who I am? If God is the tender shepherd, then I can be absolutely sure that he will care for me in my weakness. But I might ask myself, does he have the power to protect me when I need it most? I wonder to you, um, how, how comfortable are you um, thinking about God in either of these images to you is God mostly the sovereign king or is he mostly the shepherd which idea are you most comfortable with we'll come back to that thought but we're we're going to get stuck into the, the middle section verses 12 to 26 to whom will you compare God Well, the reason that Isaiah isn't content with just one image to describe what God is like is because no illustration of of what God is like will ever be sufficient. And it's a theme that's going to run through this chapter. So have a look at verse 18 with me. With whom then will you compare God? Again, in verse 25, this time it's God himself asking the question To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal? You see, we can't point to anyone or anything else in the whole universe and say, there, that is exactly what God is like, because He is incomparable. I am going to say incomparable. That's how I've I've rehearsed. (laughs) So He's incomparable. And uh, in this middle section, I want us to see three things God is the incomparable creator, He's the incomparable ruler. And thirdly, he's incomparably worthy of our worship. I used to live in a flat in southwest London. And uh, in this flat, I had a really big, spacious room. But it lacked something that many of us will know is lacking in London apartments. And that is storage. And I'd moved in with with boxes and boxes of books. But I had nowhere to put these books. And... um, I was looking around the room, and I saw that there was a nice alcove that I thought would um, make the perfect space for a bookshelf. And so I asked my friend who owned the flat, and I asked her permission to put up a bookshelf in this alcove. And she said yes, and so I uh, went to the DIY store, I bought some brackets, some MDF, I borrowed a power drill, took some measurements, um, got everything ready, and uh, eventually put up my, my bookshelf. And once all the books were neatly stored on my bookshelf, I was pretty pleased with myself. I stood back and admired my handiwork. And uh, I was pretty pleased because this was no off-the-shelf, no flat-pack IKEA bookshelf. This was bespoke and made to measure. Perfect for my number of books and my, my room. And when people came over to the flat, I kind of invited them into my room and I would show them my bookshelf in the hope that they might ask me, who made that for you? And I would say, well, that was me, actually. Um, You see, I wanted people to appreciate me for what I had made. Well, if I think I deserve appreciation for making things, how much more does God deserve appreciation as the creator of all things? This is what Isaiah wants us to see in verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who did DIY with the universe? Only God. Our problem is that we tend to close the gap between our creator and his creatures we think too little of God and too much of ourselves and we lose grasp of God as he really is we begin to humanize God to think that he's he's like us only a bit bigger and a bit wiser well in verse 13 Isaiah is going to ask us another series of probing questions Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord as his counsellor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? And who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? The answer, of course, is no one. You see, when I was building my, my bookshelf, I reached the limits of my own knowledge very quickly, because although I knew how to use a tape measure, I didn't really know how to do much else, the extent of my DIY up until that point had been hammering a few nails into the wall to put up a photo frame. A bookshelf was a bit beyond uh, my, my expertise, and so I did what, what any independent young 21st century woman would do in such a scenario and I phoned my dad (laughs) and fortunately my dad is an an engineer and quite a sort of DIY um, uh, sort of expert so uh, he drew me a diagram he um, scanned it through and sent me some instructions he told me precisely what to buy uh, so that I would be able to build the bookshelf Without the consultation of my dad, it's unlikely that I would have been able to achieve the final result. But unlike me, God has never needed to consult anyone about anything. God did not consult David Attenborough when he was determining the kinds of wildlife that would populate planet Earth. God knows the content of every Wikipedia page yet to be published. He's never needed to Google it because he's never had a single question he didn't already know the answer to. And Isaiah really wants us to feel this distinction between the incomparable creator and his creation. And it's an idea he's going to pick up again later in this section in verse 22. Have a look with me. God sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. So Isaiah is is challenging us to think from God's point of view. And it's not that God lives in the sky, but his perspective is just different to ours. It's a little bit um, like the difference between um, seeing the city of London from ground level and seeing it from the top of a tall building. I don't know if you've ever been up the, the Shard or the Sky Garden in central London. And you get a very different view of the city from the 38th floor than you do from ground level. So is challenging our perspective. To God, people are like grasshoppers. And that's not supposed to be a compliment. Grasshoppers, they're quite relatively small insects and they make a good deal of noise. If you step into a field in summer, you might have heard the grasshoppers Before you saw them? And is that what we seem like to God? Are we just small creatures who love to be heard? Small creatures who are full of our own self importance? You see, unless we feel our smallness, we won't grasp the greatness of God. He is the creator, He is over and above all things, and we are His creatures, utterly dependent upon Him. He is the incomparable creator. Secondly, we'll see that he is the incomparable ruler. And again, we'll, we'll jump around this passage a little bit. But let's start in verse 15. And Isaiah wants us to understand something really important, which is that there is only one ruler of the world. Have a look at verse 15 with me. Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket... They are regarded as dust on the scales. God weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. And again, verse 17. Before him, all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. You see, God can wipe away nations from history as easily as you or I wipe the dust from the top of the TV. God is about uh, as troubled by the advance of empires and superpowers as you or I are troubled by a dripping tap. And Isaiah's point is that it's foolish for the people to be worried about great Assyria or great Babylon because the power of God is so much greater than theirs. The power of God makes even superpowers look weak. I wonder if there are any fans of the crown in this room. One of my favourite episodes um, is the one where the Queen discovers that the government has been trying to hide something from her, and what they've been hiding from her is the fact that both the Prime Minister, Churchill, and his Foreign Secretary are very ill. In fact, they're they're perhaps having kind of life-threatening illnesses. And the the queen is furious when she discovers this because she sees it as her constitutional duty to ensure the country has a functioning government. And of course, if Churchill drops down dead, the the government won't be functioning. So she calls him in to uh, the palace for a good telling off. And it's a fantastic scene, because there you have Churchill, who's a war hero, probably twice or three times the age of the queen, who was then very new in her role. He's far better educated than her. Uh, He has much, uh, in some ways, much more status, but she wears the crown. The crown endures longer than the government, longer than the, the prime minister. The crown can put Churchill in his place. And since Churchill, in fact, the Queen has endured another 12 prime ministers. Powerful people, they come and go, but God will reign forever. Have a look at verse 23 with me. Here referring to the rulers of the world, prime ministers and and presidents. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground then God blows on them and they wither and they get swept away. Only God's rule lasts forever. So we might ask ourselves, if a God like this is in charge, why would I fear anyone at all? Well, partly it's because we we struggle with our limited minds to grasp the greatness of God. But perhaps it's also because we hold on to our pocket-sized view of God. Our pocket-sized gods are much more convenient. Our pocket-sized God doesn't challenge us or humble us. But he won't protect us either. And you see, that's what makes the people, uh, what the people are doing in verses 19 and 20 so foolish. Because they are making images or idols of God that will fit in their houses and sit on their mantelpieces. So they're they're appointing craftsmen who can make these, these images, these idols out of wood and stone, so they can take them home with them. And have a look at the end of verse 20. Do you notice what the people are most concerned about? They want to look for a skilled worker who will set up an idol that will stand up and not fall over. You see, a God like theirs might be convenient, but in a fight, he'll be useless. He's just a lump of wood and metal that can't even stand up by itself. If we try and take God and fit him into our agenda, if we try and reduce him, limit him, we'll be left with no God at all. He is the incomparable creator, the incomparable ruler. And thirdly, he's incomparably deserving of our worship. At the end of this this middle section, in verse 26, Isaiah invites us to look at something that will move our hearts to worship God. He says, Lift up your eyes and look at the stars and ask yourself, who created all these? Now, I admit that you will have to get out of London to see um, the starry night sky because you need to escape the the light pollution of the city. But um, perhaps you can think of a time when you, you have been out in the countryside and perhaps you've been camping somewhere very remote and you've looked up and you've seen thousands and thousands of stars in the night sky. Did you know that there are many more stars in the universe than we can actually see from Earth? And because I'm not very good with big numbers, I'll give you an idea of how many there are. Think back to the last time that you walked on a sandy beach. Now imagine trying to count the number of grains of sand on that beach. Done that? Once you've done that, imagine trying to count the number of grains of sand on all the beaches across the globe once you've come up with a a number or your best estimate, the number of stars in the sky would still be greater. In fact, it's thought there are perhaps 10 times more stars in the universe than there are grains of sand on Earth. And incredibly, God keeps each one of those stars burning. And this is even more incredible. If you take just 10 drops of water, you will find just as many molecules... In those drops of water, as you will find stars in the sky. God is not just the God of the very big. He's the God of the very small also. We shouldn't think that God's greatness means that he doesn't care for the small people. I wonder if you noticed in verse 26, this is really striking. God gives each of the stars a name. If he knows the names of that many stars, how could he forget you or me? Well, remember that I asked you earlier, which description of God resonated with you most? most. Was it the, the warrior king or the shepherd? Well, it won't surprise you that I'm going to tell you he's both. Um, ha- have a look again at verses 10 and 11. And this time I want you to look particularly at what both the king and the shepherd do with their arms. Do you see the king? He uses his mighty arm to rule with power. But the shepherd, he uses his arms to carry his lambs close to his heart. God's arms are both strong and tender. His arms destroy his enemies and hold his people close. He is both the sovereign and the shepherd, the God of the big and small, the strong and the weak. And doesn't that make you want to worship him? A God who is both strong and tender, a God like this, who always works his mighty power for the good of his people. Doesn't that make you want to give your life to him and to trust him? He is incomparably worthy of our worship. Well, that brings us to the the final few verses of Isaiah chapter 40. And we'll look at these more briefly God renews the strength of the weary, verses 27 to 31. So Isaiah's tactic so far has been to take our imaginations, turn them upside down, empty out all the rubbish, get rid of all the wrong ideas, and fill us with ideas that give us a God-sized view of God. And he's done this because he wants us to trust God, to live for him, and to trust him with our fears. Of course, it's always much easier to trust God when life is going well for me. And um, I don't know about you, but I'm just like the people in Isaiah's time in that respect. I know that God cares for me, but when circumstances go wrong, I really struggle to reconcile the two. Have a look at uh, verse 27 and you'll see how the people were feeling. But notice how gentle Isaiah is as he rebukes them with his questioning. Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? My cause is disregarded by my God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. The creator of the ends of the earth, he will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. When we're tempted to think that God has forgotten us, we should ask ourselves if God's understanding of our circumstances might just be that bit greater than ours. So if our worst fears do come true, or some of the suffering comes into our lives unexpectedly, we can consider that by allowing the worst to happen, God, in his wisdom, might actually be protecting us from other greater dangers, things that that we were not even aware of. Sure, we won't see God's purpose in our suffering. His understanding no one can fathom. But not one moment of our suffering is out of God's good control. You see, in the time of Isaiah, the people, they could not have guessed what God would do to fulfill his promise. The promise that we saw in verses 1 to 11, that he was going to come to them and to comfort them. Later in in his book, um, Isaiah will tell us about a suffering servant. But his hearers back then, they couldn't know what we know now. We know that that servant was the son of God. We know that the Son, like His Father, would be incomparable. He was the unique God man, the only one qualified to defeat sin and death. He brought sin and death, the two most frightening powers of all, completely under His power. And He did it in the most unexpected way. He did it through suffering on a cross. He came unprotected, He came vulnerable into the world. And through his suffering, he made his people safe. You see, God will work his power on behalf of his people, but he will do it in the ways that we least expect. Jesus' victory at the cross, it didn't look like victory. It looked like weakness. It looked like defeat. But through it all, God was working all of his mighty power for our eternal good. So as we close, how does that help us deal with the anxieties of life? What does it look like to trust in God when I'm intimidated by a colleague or I'm worried about the future of my children or I'm anxious about my financial security? What does it look like to trust in God when I don't know the future, when there's a scan result I'm waiting for in a few weeks' time or if I don't know how I'm going to cope with singleness in five years' time? While God has no limits on either his strength or his generosity. And so we can trust him to sustain us through all of life's worries. Let's look at verse 29 before we finish. God gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. I don't know if you're, um, you're like me and, and if you're approaching someone for help with something, you suddenly get all British and apologetic about it because you're worried about being a drain on that person's time or energy. Uh, you know that they've got limited resources and you don't want to ask too much of them. But the good news is we can always approach God for help. His resources, they never run out. He possesses never-ending supplies of strength. And we can keep asking, and he will keep supplying. The key, of course, to receiving is first to admit that we're weak. And that's what it means to hope in the Lord, in verse 31. Those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. And those three images there, the, the eagle, the runner the long distance walker they're all images of perseverance of keeping going when I'm afraid when there's no obvious short-term solution to my situation I do wonder how I can keep going but the truth is I can't keep going not by myself but my God can keep me going it's just as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Let me read these words to you. Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. We shouldn't be fooled by what we see on the outside Externally, our bodies, this world, they are dying. They're wasting away. But inwardly, if we're Christians, we're renewed because we have God's never-ending supply of spiritual life at work within us. And this renewal its happening even when my life is in total chaos, but I'm still able to say God is in control. This renewal is happening when I'm full of doubts, when I lack assurance that I'm even a Christian, but I can just cling on to and remember and remind myself of God's promises to me in Christ. It's happening when I'm disappointed, but I still experience the joy of knowing Christ despite all that I've lost. God will give us the grace that we need to keep going and he will do it day after day for as long as we need it until we meet him. And when we meet him, we'll know at last how small our view of him really was all this time. We will see him as he truly is. We will know that he is incomparable.
0: Thanks for listening to the Co-Mission podcast. Look out for the second talk from the Commission mission Women's Day in our next podcast. For more on Co-Mission events, go to commissionorg slash events.